Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 3, 12 through 14. And it reads, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Please be seated. Well, I'm very happy to be with you today, and it's always my great privilege and my great pleasure to be with you and to worship with you. I appreciate so much these beautiful prayers and this beautiful singing and the visit of everyone that's here. We're always very grateful. And if you're visiting, we're happy to have you. We want you to come back and be with us tonight where we will meet at 6 o'clock. I'll continue working my way through the book of 1 Timothy. And I look forward to the occasion that brings us together, and I'm certainly happy to be with you today. I want to thank these men who've led us in our worship. They've done such a fine job, and I'm very grateful for each and every one of them. I have only one thing to say today, but it has four points. And that's the point of my lesson today, the one thing. There is one thing, and I saw that, and for some reason, it caught my eye, that expression. So I began to run it down in the pages of the Bible, one, the one thing. And I found several passages that are very enlightening passages about the kind of people that we should be in living for Christ every day. And I wanted to study that matter with you, and I began to think more about the one thing. And I realized that sometimes we, beget, we get so focused on one thing, that we forget everything else. And sometimes we get so focused on one thing that we forget all the other blessings that we've had and, and continue to receive. And the one thing just preoccupies our mind. It might be one thing that we should not have. And that preoccupies our mind. And that led me to think about Ahab in the pages of the Old Testament, a wicked king of Israel who just had to have one thing, and that was Naboth's vineyard. Now, he had everything, but he couldn't get his mind off of that vineyard. He wanted to make a vegetable garden out of that vineyard. And so he went to Naboth, and he asked to buy the vineyard. Naboth wouldn't sell it. I doubt seriously if Naboth could have sold it. It was in his family for generations, and I don't know that it really was his to sell. But anyway, he said no. He wouldn't sell to the king, and the king Ahab became, uh, well, just really filled with a lot of anger, and he went home, and he was pouting, and the Bible says he turned his face toward the wall, and his wife came to him, who was quite a wicked character herself. She said, what's the matter with you? And he said, well, I wanted to buy Naboth's vineyard, but he wouldn't sell it to me. And she said, aren't you king of Israel? I'll get the vineyard for you. You know, I have to remember that she was a pagan. Ahab had married her, and in turn, she was devoted to eliminating everything about God from the land. She wanted to promote her pagan god, which was Baal. And she had done quite a job in doing that and focusing the minds of the people on the false god of Baal. And so... In doing this, she led the people, and Ahab had led the people astray. 
So through false witnesses and through deceit, she had Naboth murdered, securing the vineyard for her wicked husband Ahab. He couldn't get his mind off of that one thing. Now the fiery prophet Elijah had some things to say about it, that, but that's another story, and that's another sermon. I want to talk about one thing. What are some of the one things that we really should be or should not be focusing on? And how many times does that word actually occur in the pages of the Bible? The first one I found was in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, you have the story of the rich man. And I'm, I'm kind of amazed at this rich young ruler, as we sometimes call him. Mark chapter 10 and verse 21 the passage in mind says this, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, you'll remember this rich man. He was, I think, from all practical purposes, a younger man. In any respect, however, whatever age he had, what his age was, I really don't know. I don't know that that really matters, but he was very successful. You'll find the story in Luke chapter 18, as well as in Mark chapter 10. And he was a very successful young man. In fact, Luke, and Luke 18, verse 18, describes him as extremely rich. Extremely rich. And yet, he was so respected, must, no doubt, must have been respected well at the synagogue, must have been respected among the people. He was quite a leader. He was a ruler. He was an individual, had responsibility for others, had, must have had social rank, social standing. He was an individual who had a great deal of authority about him, a very religious man. You would think this man is a real prospect because he's a moral man, he's a good man, He's a man that really the people seem to respect and have so much consideration for. There must have been something in his life, though, because he asked the question in verse 20. It's not a question. It's the question. And I guess it's verse 17 that I have in mind. And as he was sitting out on his journey, he, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's not a good question. That's the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he had all these things that I'd mentioned already. Studying from Mark chapter 10, looking at Luke chapter 18, had all these particular aspects about him, but there must have been something about him on the inside whereby he says, what do I need to do? Jesus begins with a portion of the Ten Commandments, and he said, all these things I've kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? He said, you lack one thing. He must have realized there was something wrong. What is the one thing that he lacked? And Jesus knew. Go sell all that you have. Give to the poor. And come and follow me. And that man bowed his head and walked away sad 
because he had great riches. And Jesus said, now you see there how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. What was the one thing that he lacked? He lacked a proper appreciation for spiritual things over material things. He didn't have the right concept in his mind. He had all these particular matters. Now, he was a good man. And the text actually says he came running to Jesus and knelt down and worshipped him. What a wonderful man he was. You would think this is the best of all possible prospects right here. But he lacked one thing. And it was an important thing that he lacked. The one thing that he lacked was a proper appreciation for the spiritual. That's something we've all got to work on. Are you lacking in that one thing? A proper appreciation? Well, it's all right. Uh, I attend when I can, and I study the Bible when I have opportunity, and I try to do good to my family and do good to my neighbor, but we're not really talking about that. We're talking about a proper appreciation for spiritual things. I think we have an appreciation for the material things. As we're very concerned about the material matters which we have in this life, and we should be good stewards of what God has blessed us, but at the same time, do we have a proper appreciation? There was a man who sold his birthright for some stew one time because he didn't have a proper appreciation for the spiritual. This man loved something else more than he loved spiritual matters. Do we really understand how great the salvation of our soul is? Do we really understand and appreciate how important the salvation of someone else's soul really is? Do we really come to know and understand how important it is to worship God as God has taught in the pages of the Bible? Do we have a proper appreciation for the spiritual? Rich young ruler comes to Jesus, bowing down, worshiping him. You know, what do I lack? He said, you lack one thing. The one thing is what did him in? Is one thing going to do you in? The one thing he lacked was a proper appreciation for the spiritual aspects of life. How important it was. But there was something more important to him than that. And he bowed his head and he walked away because of one thing. But what an important thing it was. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 10, I saw this expression again. In Luke chapter 10, and it comes to us in about verse 42, you see um, an interesting incident in the life of Jesus. It has to do with the story of Mary and Martha. And if Jesus had a home, this would probably have been it, Bethany. Of course, I know that he made Capernaum his home, northern Galilee. Bethany would be just a couple of miles just east of the city of Jerusalem, just right over the Mount of Olives, little village of Bethany. And here he comes to Mary and Martha. And I'd been in the region of Perea, and he'd been working in that region which was east of that area, and he finally works his way there to Mary and Martha, and he comes for supper. What a wonderful blessing that was, Luke chapter 10, 38. The verse that I had in mind is verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. 
And so I found the expression again, the one thing. Well, what is it that's necessary for Martha? Martha, you are, you are uh, so anxious about all these particular things. What's, what is the one thing that was really necessary? Jesus comes to the household, and there are Mary and Martha, which is very typical of ancient Near Eastern households. They're very hospitable people. And they invite Jesus to come in, and Martha's very busy. She's uh, working, 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 and making sure that everything is together, and all of the food is properly prepared. And Mary, though, when she sees Jesus, sits at his feet, listening to the Savior. Must have been a pretty good little crowd to come with Jesus. At least it'd have to be 12, probably more. And so it's required a certain amount of food and consideration has to be made with regard to the plans and the preparations of it. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me, verse 40. I've often thought, as wonderful people as these are, this is a little presumptuous to tell Jesus what to do. You tell her to help me. I couldn't have done that. But she is upset because her sister now had not come to her aid to help in all of the preparations and the cooking and the cleaning and all of the things that really are going along with that particular matter. And Jesus turned to her and said our verse, verse 41. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Martha has chosen the good portion. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. She saw an opportunity to listen to Jesus. And she set that as the priority. And all the housekeeping chores and the cooking and the cleaning, as important as those things were, this is more important. It will not be but another few months and Jesus will be dying on that cross. It won't be long and Jesus will be gone. And the Savior comes to her house and she sits at the Savior's feet. And she wants to listen to what the Savior said. And she wants to apply that. She's a very sensitive kind of person, I think. A very sensitive kind of woman because she was perceptive. She knew that Jesus was the Savior. She knew that He was the one that God had sent into the world. And in so doing, she one day would be perceptive enough to anoint Him and His body before death would take place. She had insight there, insight because she listened to Jesus. I think we may have some members, and I include myself in the matter, with regard to running around and fussing around about all the details when there's one thing that's really necessary. Perhaps there are a lot of churchgoers that see to this and see to that, they take care of their business. They take care of the needs of the day. But yet there's really one thing that they're missing, the one thing that they're really needing to listen to. There's only one thing that's necessary here. 
Listen to the words of Jesus. Listen to what God has said through His Word. Now, it's good to have important jobs and do well at those jobs. It's good to have homes and take care of those homes. It's good to cook nutritious meals. It's good to clean the house. It's good to see after this. It's good to see after that. That's important. But there really is one necessary thing. What does Jesus say? And how does that apply to my life? Many times we're so concerned about these particular matters that we forget that one. And in turn, we're busy fussing over this and fussing over that, and we're anxious over this and anxious over that. And that in and of itself is a good thing. But there really is only one thing, the one thing that we really need to be caring about. What does Jesus tell me to do? What does God in His Word explain to me, teach me, and admonish me to live? What is He saying to me? That's the necessary thing. And all these other things pale into insignificance compared to it. In and of themselves, they're fine. But there's only one thing that's really necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, <coughs> which will not be taken away from her. And that's our verse 42 of Luke chapter 10. I found another one thing expression. Found for us in John chapter 9. Now, this is an interesting passage of Scripture in John chapter 9. The uh, man who was born blind, congenital type of disease. It wasn't psychosomatic. It's something he was born with. Nobody could help him. He was a blind man. There in turn, Jesus comes to the blind man, and he heals him miraculously. He takes a little clay, there in turn, mixing it together anoints the man's eyes with the clay and tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. I don't know why Jesus did it that way. The Bible doesn't say. Sometimes Jesus will not use a medium at all. Sometimes he will say, go do this and you'll be blessed, or go do that. This time he took the mud and he put it on the man's eyes. He said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He went and washed in the pool of Siloam and miraculously he's able to see. Maybe we could say that Jesus was saying, when you do what I tell you to do, you'll receive the attended blessing. Maybe that was the point that is to be learned from that matter. I don't know. I don't know why Jesus used this medium to try and successfully heal the man of his blindness. But he did. Now all the neighbors and the people come to him and say, are you the one who was born blind? He said, yeah, I'm the man. He said, no, you can't be. You look like No, I'm the man. So he has sort of an evaluation from the neighbors. Well, there are always some who say, well, we better run and tell the Pharisees about this. They'll want to know about this, John chapter 9. And so in turn, the Pharisees come into action and they want to examine the man who was born blind and now who can see. And they're asking him and asking him questions. And both of these folks, the neighbors and the Pharisees, want to know two things, mainly, how is it that you can now see, and where is the individual who did this? Notice what they say, verse 10. So they said to them, then how were your eyes open? Notice verse 12. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. And the Pharisees come, ask the same question. The how is given in verse 15. They ask the where. And they said, well, we can't get anywhere with him. We're going to bring his parents in. So they brought the man's parents in. 
and I started inquiring from them. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight. Verse 18, until they called the, the parents of the man who had received his sight, and they asked him, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Well, that was a pretty good answer, though they might have been somewhat fearful of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. For a second time, verse 24, they're asking this particular man, how is it that you have this sight? And I'm working to our verse in verse 25. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. There's that expression again, one thing. I do know one thing. The one thing that I know is now I see. You know, I think these Pharisees trying to make some kind of complex theological discussion out of this matter. It's not a complex theological discussion. As this man is making clear, I see now. There's one thing, and now I see. That's what I know. If they had been open-minded and honest with themselves and heart and mind in the Word of God, they would have seen this is Jesus Christ the righteous the Son of the living God, who's done this wonderful miracle this day. And no one can deny it. The neighbors can't deny it. The parents can't deny it. We can't deny it. This one thing is true. He now sees, and it ought to prove to them in their mind that this is the Son of God, the Christ of the living God. But they put it off. They don't want to believe. And they delay and they don't want to see the one thing. How many people do that? Put it off. Delay. I don't want to obey. I'm going to put it off. So many times we'll see things written in the pages of the Bible for our understanding and our admonition, and we'll say, well, I'm going to put that off. I'm going to delay. I'm not going to do that. I know I ought to do that. I know it's important for me to do that, but I'm going to put that off in this particular matter. I'm not going to do that. We delay, 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 when really we need to be saying, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. We are ready to do your will, O God. Tell us what you want us to do. And here it is, right in front of us, on the pages of the Bible, that we can study and learn the Word of God and do it, but we delay and we hold back. Some people do not obey the Word of God. What do they need to know? You need to know that you cannot save yourself. That all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. Paul's statement in that wonderful book of Romans. And you can't do it by yourself. There's none that doeth righteously. No, not one. Again, Romans chapter 3. We need a Savior. We need one who will pay the price for sin, and we can't do it. You need to understand that Jesus Christ is the answer to this sin problem. He's the only answer to the sin problem. Come to that understanding. 
come to the understanding that Jesus was sent by God to save me from my sins. But in addition to that, come to the understanding and do not delay in the matter whereby I need to do what Jesus said in order to receive the blessings that Jesus has in store for me. I need to respond to heaven's mandates. I need to obey them. Do not delay in that. Obey what God has told you to do. One needs to come to understand that they need to repent of their sins, Luke 13, 3, confess the name of Christ, be baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins, Acts 2, verse 38, that one is added to the church that you read about in the pages of the Bible. I would think that a minimum amount of understanding would also include the matter of I'm being translated from this kingdom, this kingdom of this world, into the kingdom of God's dear Son, Colossians chapter 1. I am no longer a child of this world, but I am a child of God in the church that belongs to Christ because of my obedience to the gospel of Christ. This is the minimum understanding that I've got to know, and I've got to know that in order to respond properly to the Word of God. Do not delay in that. There's only one thing that I know. Well, what do you need to know? And I'm trying to outline that for you, that I'm being added to the church of the living God because I was baptized into Christ for the remission of my sins based on my confession of Jesus Christ and my repentance of sin. All of these are acts of obedient faith that I learned from the pages of the Bible. I need to know these things in order to become a child of God and obedient to the gospel of Christ. Maybe you didn't know these things. But when you come to study the Word of God properly, this level of knowledge is necessary for us to become children of God. Then don't delay. Next chapter 2 and verse 41, that's one thing I admire about those, those people on the day of Pentecost. Then they that gladly received the Word were baptized. The then of Acts 2.41 is an adverb of time. Then they did it. When they learned the things that they needed to know, they responded to it. That's one of the things I admire about the Apostle Paul. Once Saul of Tarsus, now praying there in Damascus, Ananias telling him, why are you tarrying? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. Don't delay. This is the thing that you know to do. Now go ahead and do it. We have a lot of folks sometimes that put it off and put it off and put it off when they know what needs to be done. Then I saw this expression in Philippians chapter 2, and I wanted to spend some special time analyzing this chapter, Philippians chapter 3. And the verse that I found in this matter is Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13. And there it tells us that, um, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is a great passage. 
and it deserves our serious consideration. In fact, this is a great book. If you look at Philippians chapter 1, if I might analyze this briefly, he's talking about the Savior-centered life. And when you get an opportunity, you go through Philippians 1, and you count the times that he mentions about Jesus. He calls him Jesus, Jesus Christ, or Christ. And every time he mentions Jesus in these 30 verses, count how many times he makes reference to Jesus in 30 verses. It's almost every verse. Not quite, but almost. The Savior-centered life. Chapter 2. Chapter 2 is a self-emptying life that we live for others and not live for ourselves. We remove ourselves from the focus and the time and the attention is really on the other rather than ourselves. Timothy was such a wonderful example. Epaphroditus is mentioned in 25 of being those kinds of people. And Timothy just did that naturally, thinking more about other people. Chapter 3. Chapter 3 says rejoice in the Lord, but at the same time you got to beware. Because there are false teachers that are out there, and the false teachers that he's no doubt talking about are the Judaizing teachers who were trying to add and change the gospel plan of salvation, Acts chapter 15. They were trying to say, sure, we believe in repenting, and we believe in confessing, and we believe in being baptized, but we also believe in circumcision, and if you want to become a Christian, you've got to be circumcised, and you've got to become a Jew first, and then you can become a Christian, and Paul said, no, it doesn't work that way. And you've got to beware of these teachers who are trying to change the plan of salvation. They're trying to add to the plan of salvation which God had not added. And it's no doubt the Judaizers that he's referring to there. He said, let me tell you something. I can give you quite an impressive resume. And he goes through a resume here of himself in Philippians chapter 3. He says, now look at my genealogical record. Well, I was born a Hebrew of the tribe of uh, Benjamin. In fact, I was a very strict Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. In fact, I was filled with zeal because I persecuted the church of God and I was morally right as far as my keeping of the law. I kept that law fervently. In fact, he describes himself as blameless, but he said, I count it all as trash compared to Christ. Now that I'm a child of God, as important as that old law was, it no longer has meaning to me like Jesus does. Now righteousness comes through Christ. And I don't want you to think that I personally have achieved everything that I want to achieve, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And now our verse, verse 12. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. And that's what you got to do. You got to forget what went on in the past. If there are sins that went on in the past, you repent of them and you forget about them. And straining forward to what lies ahead, I'm looking forward to it, I'm doing better, and I'm trying to improve my life based on God's Word. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. And he uses that prepositional phrase, call of God, which tells us that this call came from God, that this call comes through the preaching of the gospel of Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 14, and that the purpose of this call of God is to make us more like God and to make us more like Jesus Christ. This one thing I do. Now, there are a lot of things I could do, but here's the one thing I do. 
And the one thing that he's telling us to do is to put this at the first and foremost priority of my life. Becoming a child of God and living the Christian life. This is the one thing. Now, there are a lot of other good things that Paul was doing. But this is the one thing that he needed to do. It's the very same thing that Jesus told us to do in Matthew chapter 6 and 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And the rest of these things shall be added unto you. This is the one thing. Focus on becoming a child of God. Focus on growing in Christ and maturing and being more like Christ every day that we live. Life is complex, isn't it? A lot of ups and downs in life, a lot of difficulties in life. There's one thing here. One thing. Oh, there's so many problems that are complex. I don't know how we're going to answer this. I don't know how we're going to get out of this. There's one thing here. One thing we need to do. Obey the gospel of Christ. Live it every single day. Put it as the top priority of my life. And that's simple enough that every one of us can do it. That we can become faithful children of God. And not get caught up in the complexities of life. And life is tough. Life is complex. Life is very confusing. How many times... Uh, we met people or talked to people who said, I just don't know what to do here. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know where to. There is one thing. The one thing is be a child of God and be a faithful child of God. Forget those things that happened in the past. Now live for Christ and press toward that prize which God has given by the calling of God and our obedience to the gospel of Jesus. I hope you'll obey the one gospel. I hope that you'll determine in your life to live the one life that we've been given in the pages of the Bible, the Christian life. And I pray you decide to do it now. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.